So I know that you've done the traditional Easter greeting, but it gives me great joy to initiate it as well. Uh, so, so one more time, uh, Christ is risen. Amen. Praise be to God. Uh, I invite you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28. Uh, here we find, not the Word of man, but the Word of God, which bears witness to the historical reality of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I invite you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, verses 1 through 20. And uh, let's hear God's Word together this morning. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep him out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we're gathered today to celebrate your triumph over the grave, over death, over our sins. Lord Jesus, we worship you as the Son of God, triumphant, glorious, reigning over all things. Grant us this morning to see your glory, Lord, to stand in awe of you. Grant our hearts to soar with the good news of your resurrection. Pray, Lord, that you would do what you do and open every heart in this place, Lord, that they might see the truth of the resurrection, believe it, and be internally transformed and blessed. Uh, we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would work mightily in our midst today, bless the proclamation of your word, and grant it to accomplish all of your good purposes in our midst. Amen. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Christians in Corinth, very famously wrote, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If there's no resurrection, there's no hope. And if there's no hope, do what you want. Try to squeeze every last drop of pleasure from this life, because when you die, that's it. The lights go out, curtains close, there is no hope beyond the grave. Hedonism, a life committed to unbridled pleasure, 
is the result of despair and hopelessness. When there is no hope of life beyond the grave, people abandon themselves to the pursuit of pleasure, to food and drink. We amuse ourselves to death, as Neil Postman once wrote, or at least amuse ourselves that we might forget about death. The pursuit, the unqualified and unmitigated pursuit of pleasure indicates that we are hopeless and despairing people. But the resurrection of the Son of God bears witness to us. God in the resurrection bears witness to us that there is indeed hope in the Son of God beyond the grave. For those who trust in Jesus, death is not the end. It's the beginning of eternal life in his presence. And so this morning as we reflect on the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, what we need to consider is the hope of the resurrection. Look at this passage and consider the great hope that we who trust in Christ have. But we'll consider also a significant obstacle to believing in the resurrection. A significant obstacle to believing in the resurrection. So the story of the resurrection begins like this. There are two Marys. Uh, early morning on, East, on the morning of um, Easter Day, Easter Sunday, before the sun perhaps is even shining, uh, they're groping about in the darkness looking for a tomb, looking for a corpse. And the early morning silence is broken by an earthquake and the descent of an angel from heaven whose appearance was like lightning. It terrifies the guards. They become like dead men, which is ironic because they were meant to guard the dead man, the corpse. They become like corpses. The, the stone that protected the body of Jesus is rolled away. What's happening here is that God, through his angel, is undoing the precautions that at the end of chapter 27 have been taken by the religious leaders to secure that, the body of Jesus and make sure nobody gets it. They sealed the tomb. Uh, they set a guard over the tomb to make sure nobody takes that body. But God had other plans. Since his angel, the stone is rolled away and they are paralyzed with fear. The angel doesn't address the guards. He addresses the two women. And he says, first of all, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Uh, I, I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. This is the characteristic encouragement that angels give in Scripture. When they show up, human beings are terrified by their presence, and the characteristic encouragement is don't be afraid. But it gets better. The angel announces that the Son of God who was crucified and died on Good Friday passed through death and broke through to the other side. He is alive. Now, his resurrection precedes the coming of the angel. It's not that when the angel rolled away the stone, uh, that's when Jesus was resurrected. His resurrection happened earlier, but the rolling away of the stone was meant to give them a glimpse of the empty tomb to demonstrate that it had happened. So after the angel announces that Jesus has been risen, he invites these women to peer into the empty tomb and to observe that there is no body there. It's important to recognize the significance of this fact in the resurrection uh, narratives. It's not that Jesus' body lay there in the tomb and then as a spirit, he confronted his disciples. Right? That's not resurrection. The fact that the spirit can go on living even after your body has died is not what the Bible means by resurrection. The point is that on the other side of death, Jesus' body and soul were reunited. This is an embodied life. He passed through death, soul and, and, and uh, physically, and then came out on the other side, soul and body. There's a reunion of these things. He is not simply spirit. He is, in his new life, a man. He is embodied. And finally, the angel tells uh, the women that they are to go and tell the disciples. 
The news of the resurrection is not just something that you enjoy privately. The news of the resurrection is something you take to other people. Indeed, the gospel ends this way with a risen Lord inviting his disciples and the church by extension to go and bear witness to his resurrection and declare to the world that he is risen and he is Lord over all and all are called to submit. So the women in their fear and joy run to tell the disciples. Fear because this is an unfamiliar moment, what's going on, but also joy because an unexpected and great reversal has taken place. Jesus has come back. The angel has witnessed to it, and they've seen the empty tomb. But now, dramatically, they encounter the Lord himself. They see Jesus Christ, and they lay hold of his risen body, and they worship him. These first verses of Matthew indicate to us again and again is that he is indeed risen. The witness of the angels, the empty tomb, the women clasping the body of Jesus Christ, the testimony is that Christ is risen. Death couldn't hold him. The Son of God is triumphant. His resurrection is unparalleled in history. We know and the ancients knew that you die and stay dead. Sometimes in our chronological snobbery, as C.S. Lewis called it, uh, we attribute a superstition to the ancients that is illegitimate. They weren't more gullible than we. They knew people who died stayed dead. This is the iron law of human existence. We're born, we live, we die. We're born, we live, we die. That's the uh, ominous refrain of human existence. But that law is suddenly challenged with the resurrection of the Son of God from the grave. Jesus has done what no one before him has ever done. He has conquered the grave. And this is even unlike, by the way, those instances in Scripture where human beings are brought from the grave for a period of time and then die again. So I think here of Lazarus. Right? Jesus raises Lazarus from the grave, then Lazarus eventually dies again. We should distinguish that from a resurrection. We should call it a resuscitation. Lazarus was resuscitated from the grave and then died again. This is different from all that. What Matthew is saying is that Jesus went down into the grave, into the depths of death, but then he broke through to the other side to a glorious life, a life unlike the life of this uh, present world, a life that is no longer under the sway and dominion of death. With his resurrection, a new chapter in human history is opened. There is a new kind of life that comes with the resurrection. Life in all of its fullness. Life as it was meant to be lived. Life in its full flowering. It's not simply life of the old kind, the kind that we now enjoy. It's resurrection life. Glorified life. Uh, the Apostle Paul captures this in Romans chapter 6, verse 9, when he writes... We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. In other words, he didn't just come back to die again. He broke through to a new order of things such that he is beyond death. He is beyond the shadow of death. Uh, he enjoys resurrection, glorified existence. C.S. Lewis in his book, Miracles, captures it this way. The New Testament writers speak as if Christ's achievement in rising from the dead was the first event of its kind in the whole history of the universe. He is the first fruits, the pioneer of life. He has forced open a door that has been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so. This is the beginning of the new creation. A new chapter in cosmic history has been opened. Life, not this present life, but life in its highest form has been inaugurated with Jesus' resurrection. And what does that mean for us? 
Well, the first thing it means is that our sin and wickedness and guilt and judgment that put Jesus on the cross on Good Friday, all of that is left behind in the grave. There is no condemnation for those who place their faith in Jesus Christ. The the accumulated guilt of a lifetime of disobedience to God is left with his grave clothes in the tomb. I don't know how your school operated when you were in grade school, but in in my school, if you got out of line, uh, you'd have to serve detention. So after school, you would go to a specially designated uh, classroom. Uh, After the bell rang, you'd have to stay, and they'd put you in a chair, and you couldn't do any activities, and you couldn't talk to anyone. You just sat, and you stared, and you paid your debt to society. Uh, And when you had finished paying your debt to society, the teacher would come over to you and say, okay, you can go now. And you'd open the door and walk back out into the bright sunshine. Uh, That was the sign that it was finished, that your debt had been paid when the teacher came to you and said, hey, you're done, you can go. The door opened, swung behind you. You are free, you are in the light. The demands of justice had been met. Uh, And in a similar way, in an analogous way, the resurrection signals to us that the debt of sin is paid. There is no more guilt left. There is no more sin left to be atoned for. Had there been sin left to atone for, there would have been no resurrection. Jesus would have remained in the grave. His resurrection means that it is finished. That guilt and judgment and condemnation before a holy God, for God's people, that has passed. And through his resurrection, we have victory. Think about what that means for your future. There are many people who are... uh, Anxious about the future, what's going to happen to me? But the problem is you're not looking far enough into the future. You're not looking into the distant future. What does that distant future hold? It holds not an eternal rejection, but an eternal welcome in the presence of God. There are no guarantees in life, are there? There are no guarantees specifically about what will or will not happen in the future. Uh, No one can guarantee to you, for instance, that you'll never get into a car wreck that you'll never lose your job. But if you trust in Jesus Christ, there is an unshakable guarantee that at the end of your life, there is not rejection and judgment, but an eternal welcome from God the Father. That's where we're going. When he was condemned at the cross, the cup of God's wrath was extended to the Son. And the son drank, and he drank the punishment that we deserve for our guilt and sin against a holy God. He drank until he emptied the cup. The resurrection bears witness to the fact that there is no more curse for sin. There is no more judgment. There is the eternal welcome of God the Father to his people. Whatever heartaches and horrors we may experience between now and that day, our victory is assured. I love it when you look up at the sky, and it's covered by a thick carpet of gray clouds, but then in the distance you see a patch of dazzling blue and a violent eruption of golden sunlight. Uh, And and in some ways that's a picture of the Christian life. We don't know what gray clouds we're going to walk under in this life, uh, what storms we'll have to navigate, but we do know that on the far side there is light and joy and peace with God. That's our destiny. And when we recognize that, that should give us confidence and peace. There's confidence as we face the future. No one can take that destiny from us. We are destined not from wrath, but for salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. His resurrection means that the full debt of our sin has been paid, 
and we look forward to God's acceptance, not rejection. It should give us hope and confidence in this life. But there's more. Not only does his resurrection mean that we have been delivered from condemnation, we now have peace with God, his resurrection is in a sense a picture of our future. He is the first fruit, that's how he's described in scripture, the first one of his kind. But because we are united to Jesus by faith, one day we also will join him in the resurrection. One day we will pass through the grave and come out on the other side like him and experience glorified life. Life as it was really meant to be lived. One day Jesus, our Lord, is coming back and he is going to say, live, and all those who are in the grave who belong to him will rise up with glorified bodies in the context of a new creation. That's where we're going. Jesus' resurrection is a foretaste of our own future. We know what it means to move from death, sorry, from life to death very slowly, don't we? As we get older, gradually our joints stiffen. Our strength and energy begin to fade. Our mind isn't as sharp, it begins to slow down, and eventually we die. We know that slow movement from life to death. But what will it be like in an instant to go from death to life? To experience in a moment that great reversal, when weariness and illness, weakness will be set aside forever, and we will rise again with strong, energetic, glorified bodies. For those who believe in Jesus, that's our destiny. That's where we're going. And best of all, at the end of all of our travels, when all is said and done, we will see the face of the king. We will see the glory of the king and we will be glad. That's the hope that God's people have because of the resurrection. When you live in light of that hope, you can face anything with confidence because you know where you're going. It's the hope that keeps you from having to cling to every last drop of pleasure. You don't need to constantly grasp at the good things of life because there is a better life coming. Hope in the resurrection is a liber- has a liberating effect on life. Uh, frees you to face the challenges of life uh, without losing heart. So that's the hope that we have. Second thing we notice about this passage, though, is that there is a significant obstacle to believing in the resurrection. A significant obstacle to believing in the resurrection. Notice that there aren't there isn't simply one set of witnesses in this passage. There are actually two sets of witnesses. The first set are the, the Marys that we looked at, but the second set are those guards that were supposed to be protecting Jesus' tomb. They saw the, the angel roll the stone away. They saw the angel, looks like lightning. They saw the empty tomb. And so they go to the Jewish leadership and they say, here's what happened. We don't know what to do about it, but we're just going to tell you. And it's fascinating to me that from all appearances, they don't bat an eye. They don't pause and go, wait a minute. What do we do in light of this fresh evidence that the resurrection has taken place? Do we need to reconsider our position? Is it possible? Is he he really raised? No, their response is very matter of fact. All right, never mind the stuff about angels and, and stones being rolled away. We need to make sure that Word of this doesn't spread. So we're going to give you some money, and you tell everybody that while you were sleeping, the disciples of Jesus came and took the body. That's the official story. We're all going to stick to it, right? Don't deviate from that hypothesis. Never mind that if you're sleeping, you can't know it's the disciples who took the body. There's a bit of a problem, but that's the official story. And by the way, 
This might be the first alternative explanation to the resurrection in history, but man, they've been multiplying over the course of 2,000 years. There, there have been all kinds of weird and creative attempts to offer a plausible uh, alternative to the fact that the Son of God rose from the grave. This is the first of these. But what I want you to see is that having evidence for the resurrection isn't enough to move you from unbelief to belief. They were better positioned than almost anybody in Jerusalem to believe in the resurrection. The guards came and said, we saw it. We saw the angel, we saw the empty tomb, we saw the stone rolled away, and that doesn't move them at all. And the reason it doesn't move them at all is because they deeply desire for the resurrection not to be true. They deeply want it not to be the case. Think about how threatening it would be for them to admit that the resurrection happened. Think about what it would cost them to say, yeah, the Son of God's risen from the grave. It would mean in the first instance that they're responsible for the murder of the Messiah. All of the status quo, their position in society, all of it would come tumbling down if they admitted the truth. So they had a bias against accepting the truth. In their heart of hearts, they wanted it not to be true, and they interpreted the evidence accordingly. That means for you today, if you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you don't trust in him as the Savior, it means that your unbelief is not simply the, the result of, of a, a lack of evidence for the resurrection. There is evidence. It's worth looking at the evidence for the resurrection. But there's something deeper that's happening in your heart. You know that if you admit that Jesus rose from the grave, then everything becomes unsettled. There is a desire to maintain the status quo and deny the resurrection. But again, we should affirm there are plenty of good and satisfying reasons to believe that the resurrection of the Son of God actually happened in history. This is not a myth. Like One indication of that is the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection. Who are they? Mary and Mary. What are they? Women. Uh, both in Jewish and Roman culture, the testimony of women was considered inferior to that of men. If you were making up a resurrection account, you wouldn't have as your first eyewitnesses women. You'd have men showing up. The fact that it's women, and the fact that these women are actually the ones who first tell the disciples of Jesus, indicates that we're not reading some sort of contrived account of the resurrection. We're reading historical fact. And consider the way the Gospels portray the apostles. The church believes in the resurrection because of the testimony of the apostles, who are eyewitnesses of the resurrection. Right? Their testimony is foundational. But how are they described in the Gospels? Well, they prove to be disloyal to Jesus when he's betrayed. And even when the resurrection happens and they hear about it, they're full of doubts. No, it couldn't have happened. Uh, I don't know. I, I need some evidence, says Thomas. I need to put my finger in his side. You don't characterize the apostles, who are the primary witnesses to the resurrection, in this way in this negative light, if you're making it up. Again, one more indication that we're looking at history, not fantasy. And consider the historical fact that in the first century, a group of Jews began to worship Jesus alongside God, as God. Whatever else the, Jewish, the Jews were, they were radical monotheists. They're, they believed that there's one God. And all of a sudden, you have Jews in the first century beginning to worship Jesus as God and next to God. What happened? The best explanation is that a resurrection happened that vindicated Jesus as the Son of God. And consider the fact that the resurrection 
in the middle of history was massively implausible to Jews. I mean, you had a group of Jews who didn't believe in the resurrection at all, but then other Jews who did believe in the resurrection believed it would happen at the end of human history when everything would be made new. They had no category for the resurrection happening in the middle of history when, before everything was fixed. But all of a sudden, a substantial group of Jews began to say, hey, the, guys, the, the resurrection has happened. It's happened right here in the middle of history. What happened to create that category? How did that uh, novel idea, unprecedented and original idea, gain ground? Well, the best explanation is that there was a, a resurrection in the middle of history. The Son of God was raised from the grave, and they, come to, they came to understand that the resurrection happens in stages. Stage one, Jesus' resurrection. Stage two, that final resurrection that we're all a part of. And finally, consider the fact that the apostles, almost all of them, died because of their witness to the resurrection. You don't give your life for a lie. You give your life if you truly believe what you're saying. Pascal put it this way, I believe those witnesses that get their throats cut. It's a good point. If somebody's willing to die for their belief, it probably means they believe what they say they believe. All of that is evidence that we're not, we're not talking about a myth, human speculation. We're talking about something that actually happened. But that's not enough, as we've seen with the religious leaders. If in your heart you don't want the resurrection to be true, perhaps because you want to maintain control of your life, and you don't want to face the painful and threatening implications of what it would mean to accept that the resurrection is true, if that's where your heart is, you're always going to find a reason to disbelieve. You're going to have a reason to say, well, the evidence is not quite in yet. The fact of the resurrection is not like other historical facts. Right? If you believe that uh, Napoleon invaded Moscow in 1812, it's not going to change much about the way you live in the present, right? That's not a threatening fact. You can accept it and still kind of move on the way, the way you did before. But if you believe that the Son of God really came into the world, really bore the wrath of God for our sins, really rose from the grave, to say that that's true has all kinds of implications for how you see yourself and how you see Jesus and your um, duty to him. It shows that you are a sinner in need of a savior. It shows that Jesus is the son of God and Lord over all and you owe him your allegiance. So this morning, if you are rejecting the resurrection, it's helpful for you to ask, why am I re rejecting the resurrection? What's threatening about the resurrection? What do I fear that I will have to lose if I accept the resurrection? What good thing am I holding on to that the resurrection threatens? The path to faith in the resurrection of Jesus is not simply getting more evidence, but actually looking at your heart and looking at the thing that you cherish more than Jesus and don't want to let go of. One thing that keeps people from acknowledging the resurrection is the, they want to be in control of their own life, personal autonomy. They, they want to be able to call the shots, and the idea of submitting their life to someone else is painful, so the resurrection seems implausible to them. But I want to say to you this morning that Jesus is far better than whatever else you think holding on to is worth it, right? Uh, Jesus is far better than that thing that you are holding on to and refuse to let go of to submit to him. His forgiveness is far better. We saw that through his death and resurrection, there is peace with God, the pardon of sins. What do we characteristically do with our guilt? We rationalize it. We don't think about it. We explain it away. We try to avoid it. But in Jesus, there isn't a rationalization for sin. 
are called to forget it. There's a call to recognize how terrible you really are, but also to recognize that there is in Jesus everything you need to be made clean. The answer is not avoidance, rationalization. It's the death of the Son of God that makes us clean in the sight of God. His forgiveness is better than any other thing you might be holding on to. The hope of the resurrection is better. If the resurrection is true, then death is not the end for the believer. It's the first step to eternal life and glory. Those who believe in Jesus have a glorious future in the presence of God. And third, Jesus is better than whatever you're holding on to. We were made for God. We were made in his image, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in God. No amount of money and comfort and ease and pleasure and success in the workplace can ever compensate for the loss of God. Psalm 16 says, in your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. It's in the presence of God that we find the deep spiritual satisfaction that we're searching for. No good created thing can compensate for the loss of Jesus. And finally, Jesus is faithful to his people to the end. Look at the very last part of Matthew. When he meets his disciples, finally, he announces that he has been enthroned as Lord over all. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Combine that, that statement of supreme authority with what he says at the end. Jesus is supreme and glorious. He is king, enthroned on the other side of the resurrection. But then as our king, he pledges to be with us to the end of the age. Wherever you go, I will go. I will sustain you. I will protect you. I will rouse you from your slumber, sustain you in your weakness, and I will bring you safely home. I will be with you. There's better security in Jesus than there is in anything else. And so this passage this morning challenges all of us, not simply to assent to the fact that the resurrection happened, not simply to say, yeah, it's true, Jesus rose from the grave, but to personally commit ourselves to Jesus Christ. If you rose from the grave, then that fact makes certain claims on you. The first claim that it makes is that you need to come to the end of yourself, recognize that you are a sinner in need of divine grace, and you need to trust in Jesus as your Savior. And you need to pledge your allegiance to him as king, recognizing that life under his reign is far better than the life that you have and are carving out for yourself. If the Holy Spirit's been working in your heart this morning, making you receptive to the truth of the resurrection, that Jesus really is who he says he is, now is the time to respond. You don't know if a week from now you're still going to be receptive to any of this. When God works to give you light from above, to see things clearly, that's always the time to respond. Today is the time to respond. Today is the day to believe in Jesus as Savior and submit to him as Lord. And if you want to learn more about how to do that, I would love to talk to you after the service, as would any of the other elders at CBC. We would love to sit down with you and explain to you uh, in more detail what it means to follow Christ and trust in him. But today is the day to believe. And if today you have believed in Jesus, if he is your Savior and Lord, then this day should be a day of joy and celebration. Our King has conquered the grave, we have peace with God, and we have the hope of resurrection life. That means you can face anything that this life has to throw at you with confidence. Whatever dark clouds exist between now and that glorious future bright day, Jesus will preserve us and bring us safely home. C.S. Lewis beautifully describes this hope. He writes, We are like a seed patiently waiting in the earth, waiting to come up a flower in the gardener's good time, up into the real world, the real waking. I suppose that our whole present life, looked back on from there, will seem only a drowsy half-waking, 
We are here in the land of dreams, but the cock crow is coming. The resurrection is coming. Praise be to God. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we revel in the fact, rejoice in the fact that you have brought us near to God, have taken away our guilt and sin and established peace with God. We thank you that we have in you the hope of everlasting life. We pray that that hope, Lord, would change everything, uh, that it, it would cause us to be people who don't hold too tightly to this life, but hold uh, tightly to the world to come. We pray that we would live with confidence and boldness and freedom in light of what you've done. Amen.